Christmas is upon us, isn't it? A reminder. And yes, we are going to have our Christmas Eve service on Saturday night, and we will meet for church on Sunday morning. And uh, we'll have just the one service at 1045. And so we want to make sure that you understand that we are not going to change. I know a lot of churches are having their candlelight service on Saturday, and they're not doing church on Sunday morning. I have a hard time with that. But if you can't make it, I understand. So the five of us will be in this auditorium together having a service at uh, 1045 on Christmas morning. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Savior, than to be with God's people on that beautiful day. It doesn't happen very often, does it? So uh, buckle up and here we go. So we're going to talk, start a new series today in preparation for Christmas. And we're going to, for the next four Sundays, we're going to look at four very different passages surrounding the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, whom we celebrate at Christmas. But these, these scriptures that we're going to look at are about the visitations from the angels. Did you know that there are four passages that sort of define and describe four angelic appearances, visitations from God, messengers that came from God to specific people regarding the birth of Jesus? And so we're going to take a look at each and every one of those and see how that sort of relates to us during the holiday season. The first that we're going to see today is a study about Zacharias and Elizabeth, two incredible people. And as we get started for this study, I want to begin with by asking you a single question. Here's the question. You ready? Do you believe that God can use you for extraordinary things? Do you believe that God can use you And that God wants to use you for extraordinary things. I think most of us, in all honesty, would probably look in the mirror and in evaluating ourselves would more than likely come away with a conclusion that, you know, I don't have much to bring to the table. I don't have a whole lot to offer. I don't have a lot of talents and abilities. I don't have a lot of income. So how in the world then could God and how would God then use me to do extraordinary things? Because most of us see ourselves pretty much in an ordinary way. Now, in case you're one of those people that lives with somebody that thinks you're extraordinary, this is the time to do this to them and wake them up and say, you know, you need to humble yourself just a little bit, all right? Because in all reality, I think, when we compare ourselves to God and, and what God would want to do in and through us, we, most of us see ourselves as pretty ordinary people. And we just don't see ourselves as God inviting us and initiating with us and and joining us in this extraordinary thing that God wants to do. But I'm convinced that you are here today, not by accident, and that God wants to use you to do extraordinary things. And we're going to see how God selectively chose a man named Zachariah, his wife Elizabeth, to do something extraordinary and to sort of help us understand the context of what the Scripture is saying. I have one word that we're going to sort of revolve this whole study around. It's the word readiness. What God is doing through the angelic visit to Zechariah while he's in the place of worship, God is sending Gabriel as a messenger to ready Zechariah to do and to get ready for what God is about to do. There's an aspect of readiness that has to happen if we are going to be used by God to do extraordinary things. God has a way of coming to us and preparing us exactly like he wants us to be prepared for so that he can then use us in a way that reflect his desire and to reflect his glory. We have to be ready. And I'm convinced that God sort of 
has to overlook people who are unwilling to ready themselves for what God wants to do through them. Because if you're not ready, when God comes to you to do this extraordinary thing, you're not ready. You won't be able to be used by God the way that God wants to use you. And I think God passes people up more often than not, not because of their inability or because they lack something or because they don't bring a lot to the equation or to the table, but simply because they have failed to ready themselves for what God wants to do. And so we're going to talk about readiness here through this passage in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 5. And because of the the length of this passage, you noticed as uh, Pastor Andy was reading, there's, there's 20 verses here. There's a lot of verses. So we're going to sort of do a flyover. And so this is going to be really, really quick. Uh, some of you know me well enough. I can develop a 50-minute message. Okay, maybe a 60-minute message with only three words. So this is a lot of text in a very short period of time. And so we're going to try to capitalize on this as quickly as possible. So to be ready, there's the first ingredient that I find in this text for readiness is that I must act responsibly. There's a responsibility that is required for me to be ready so that God can use me. Yes, I am responsible to be ready when God wants to use me. And if I'm not ready, then I'm not being responsible. And I think, as I said earlier, that one of the main reasons why a lot of people somewhat get overlooked by God is because simply they are not responsible in making themselves ready. Notice in the text, verse 5, we're not going to read that text, but verse 6 is there. But just sort of recap where we have been and where we're going so far. Verse 5 helps us understand that there are some primary characters in this text. The first one is Herod, and Herod is a ruler, and Herod is a very bad ruler. He's a very bad king. He has no remorse. He has no regret. He has no repentance. He has no place for God in his life. He is a wicked, vile, heathen king, even though he has been responsible for some of the the, the regaining and redoing of the temple and all of those things. He's not a nice guy, and the world is filled with incredible darkness and despair. To top it all off, not only is Herod the Israelite ruler who's a wicked king, they are being governed by Rome as well. The Roman Empire is, is there, and they're under this oppression and suppression, and the people are depressed in this darkness and in this, this desperation, and God is now going to invade this darkness with a wonderful light, and his name is going to be Jesus. So there's a ruler, but there's some righteousness in this text Because if you look at verse 6, you learn, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statues of the Lord. Here God describes two people introduced in verse 5, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are defined now in verse 6 as righteous before God. They are blameless in the commandments. You know, I don't know about you, but when you read that on, on the surface, that's sort of makes you wonder and makes you think, are these people perfect people? Is there any such thing as an individual or person that can be blameless? This word blameless is the same word that is used in the Old Testament for other people that God has used in mighty ways like Moses, uh, like Abraham, and others. They are blameless. And it doesn't mean here that these people are perfect because we know that there's only one perfect person in this room today. Who is that person? No, it's me. No, I'm not perfect. The only single perfect person was Christ, sinless, perfect in every way. So how can two people like Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zachariah and Elizabeth, be called perfect and blameless? 
It wasn't because they were perfect and they managed to attain perfection by obeying all of the Ten Commandments. I think what he is saying here is in the midst of all this wickedness and despair and despondency that's going on in their righteousness before God, there are two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are blameless in this fact. They are humble enough to acknowledge and understand that they are sinners. The Scriptures tell them that they are sinners. And they are involved in the practice of offering sacrifices for their sin. They are admitting their sin before God, and they are laying their their sin on this altar sacrifice. They're placing on the altar on a regular basis, and that sacrifice becomes the substitute for their sin, dies in their place, and that blood that is shed then cleanses them of their sin and gives them now a position before God as blameless. And they are people who are seeking to abide by not only living out the commandments, but offering then sacrifice for their sin as commanded by the Old Testament so that they might present themselves blameless before God. They are walking in an intimate love relationship with their God by being blameless and doing everything they can to possibly bring as much purity into their lives as they possibly can. There are a lot of people today who think that God just sort of sort of nods at their sin. They understand what the Word of God says and that the Word of God is, is reflecting and revealing the sin in their hearts and their souls. And they, they even admit that they are sinning or they admit that they're committing an act of sin and, and, and they may, in their heart of hearts, know that the way that they're living is, is disproving to God and yet they somehow... I don't know how they do this, and, 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 and I've done this, and you've done this. We've all done this. We sort of rationalize this, this sin that we're committing and justifying our position, thinking, you know what? God doesn't really care about that. He's not really bothered by that. It's not really a big deal to him. And so we independently and carelessly choose to live sinful lives, and as a result of that, we're acting irresponsibly rather than responsibly. A responsible Christ follower, while perfection is not attainable in this life, seeks to live a perfect life. We are seeking to understand how the scriptures are commanding us how we should live, and we're seeking to live those out. But in our attempt to live out the commandments, to live out the will and the plan and the purpose of God for our lives, we recognize and understand that every one of us in this room have one thing in common. We have sinned as recently as this morning. And we search the scriptures and we, we allow the Spirit of God to, to search our hearts, to reveal areas in our lives in which we have disobeyed, we have violated the commands and the principles and the precepts of God. And in humility, we come before him and we lay those sins at the cross. And Christ then absorbs that sin when he died on the cross for our sin against God. And that sacrifice becomes the atonement by which we then are cleansed of that sin. And we then, by believing in Jesus, who took upon himself our sin on the cross, dying in our place through the power of the resurrection, has set us free from the consequence and the condemnation of that sin. Why? Because we've confessed it and we've repented of it. You cannot have cleansing without confession and repentance. And so here we see two amazing people who are being selected by God simply because they are two people in the midst of this polluted, corrupt, dark culture they're living in who are living righteously before their God and they're living blameless. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And when we acknowledge, when we confess, and when we repent and lay our sin at the feet of Jesus and place it on the cross, he dies for that sin, and we then stand blameless before God. And we can then be ready to be used by him. Don't underestimate, don't undercut the importance of being cleansed of every sin to be ready to be used by God because I'm convinced there are no small sins. There are no insignificant things in our lives that we can coexist with on a regular basis and God is just going to overlook. We must seek a deep cleansing that, that goes deep into the heart and the soul and the life in which we're trying to live for God Recognizing that we just can't do it, but we, we come to the cross and we seek the cleansing that we desperately need. So act responsibly toward your sin. Number two, not only to be ready, I must not only act responsibly, but I must answer God's call. We see in that verse, which is not on your screen in verse 6, this important aspect about what now takes place. We're introduced to, to, uh, to Zechariah and we're introduced to Elizabeth as, as blameless, godly people who are seeking to live out the lives they best can with with living out the commandments and offering sacrificial you know, offerings because of their sin and, and presenting themselves blameless as possible before God. They're, they're, they're good people. They're seeking to live righteously. And now Zechariah is, is introduced in verse 6. He identi- is identified as being one of the priests. And uh, it, it helps us understand a little bit about him. <laughs> um, Zechariah is of a, a lower order of priest, but he marries well. In other words, he married up. Can I get an amen, guys? He married up. He married Elizabeth. He married up. It's, it's, she is described here as someone who is a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the original priest that went with Moses. I mean, you can't get in a higher order of the priest than Aaron, and she is a daughter, a direct descendant of Aaron, so he married really well. Guys, let me give you some advice. Those of you who are not married yet, I don't care what choice you do, or, or what, you got to marry up. Because if you don't marry up, the rest is hopeless. All right? And which man in here did not marry up? Can I get an amen to that? If you married up, say amen. All those men who did not amen that are in trouble already. You're, you're too late. Should have been a little quicker. Yeah. Jason, you're in trouble, man. Oh. <laughs> He's saying, why'd you do that to me, honey? I don't know why, but anyway. Oh, well, we digress. He is a part of, the, of, of one of the divisions of the priests. There are 1,800 priests in Judah, 1,800. And they are divided into divisions. And these divisions have, they take turns to administer the worship in the temple. And on this particular day, it is the division for which Zechariah belongs to that they are to minister in the temple. You follow me? And that order, that division, casts lots. We're not going to talk about that because I, I don't like gambling, and it's not gambling. But they cast lots so that through casting lots, God determines who will be the one, the priest, who will go in the morning and in the evening to offer incense upon the altar of incense. 
Every morning and every evening, they go in, and the altar of incense is in, is in this very secluded place next to the Holy of Holies. And every morning and every evening, this, this priest would go in, designated by God after having cast lots to light the incense that is supposed to be symbolic of the prayers of the people of God going up into heaven. And they'll, they'll stand outside, and they'll watch the smoke go up. And it's symbolic of the prayers that the people of God are offering to God. And so every morning, every evening, a priest is designated by casting lots. And on this particular day, can you believe it? Lots are cast, and Zechariah is selected to be the priest to do that. Now, this is not by chance. This is not by coincidence. This is by the sovereign divine act of God. This is the moment that God selects Zechariah on this particular day through the order that he has set up way back through Moses in the Old Testament where God is now actively intervening in the world, in all of the darkness, so that Zechariah could be at the exact spot that he's supposed to be in so that God can send his angel to speak to him. And it's at that moment that we learn in verse 11... And there appeared to him, while he has just finished his exercise of offering incense on the altar of incense, and he is lying with his face in the dirt, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now keep in mind what they believed at this particular time in history in worship. They are offering incense, the priest is, Zechariah is, at the altar of incense just directly in front of the Holy of Holies. I mean, I mean, it's right there. You can see it. Almost you can touch it. There's a veil. But, you can, but they are offering every morning, every day that. And he's there, and he knows that he is very close to the Shekinah presence and the glory of God. And he, he goes in there, if you can imagine, having prayed up like nobody's ever prayed up. I mean, he's confessed things since, since junior high or, or maybe preschool or whatever. And he's making sure that he's going to go in there just confessed up. And he goes in there... He believes right with God, and he goes through the ritual and the routine that he's practiced many, many times to make sure that he does it exactly right. And he takes all of the stuff that he has prepared, the ointments and, and, and the special incense, and he lights it, and the smoke begins to go up, and he falls with his face in the dirt, and he begins to pray. That's his responsibility. And while he is praying there at the foot of the altar of incense, I can imagine, like some of you do during a prayer, he sort of opens one eye... Because he realizes there's something going on. There's a presence that there's something that's different, something he didn't recognize, and he sees a foot. He's a foot. Sees a foot. And then he sees the, the second foot, and he begins to realize there's someone here with me. No one is supposed to be here with me. It's just me and God. I've been selected for this, and there's someone standing here. I mean, this, this person standing here is a literal, physical presence. It's not a ghost it's not a vision. This is a real person that is standing there, and he recognizes by the feet that there's someone there, and they're not supposed to be there, and he freaks out. You would too. And he doesn't know why this person is there, and he recognizes it as, as his eyes and his face begin to look up, and, and he sees, you know, the legs, and then the, the beautiful robe that he's wearing and, and, the, and the glory and the splendor and the majesty of this, this being that is standing there. Who is he? He doesn't know who this is. Is it God? Is it an... I don't... But it's not supposed to be here. And he's freaked out. And this is God sending Gabriel, an angel, into this 
aspect of worship where he and God alone are worshiping. And God is initiating this whole thing with Elijah. Not Elijah. Um, Zechariah. We're going to go into Elijah in a minute with Zechariah. And he's probably wondering, why is this guy here? God goes to where he is. He's orchestrated. God has orchestrated from the Old Testament up until now and, and his whole life to bring him this very moment. And God sends an angel and he looks up and God is initiating this, this, this whole thing. You know, let me tell you, you don't, you don't come to God and tell God, I'm ready to be used. God is the one who initiates your usability. And God sends an angel to initiate his usability. He sends the angel to initiate, and then that initiation, he invades everything in this man's life. I mean, if you can imagine, this man is an older man, and most of us who are growing older can understand we have a plan, we have things set, we have an order, we have, we have a routine, we have a ritual, and all of a sudden we think that as soon as we get through here, we're going to do this and this and this and this. And, and it's an amazing when God intervenes in our lives and he invades our lives, everything from that moment will change. And I don't know about you, but I don't like change. Somebody say, well, that's news to me. You should do a lot of change for somebody who like change. I don't like change. And he invades this man's life, and he brings total change to all of his plans and all of his preparations and what, what he's going to have for dinner that night. Everything changes after this encounter. And he invites him to join God in what God is about to do. God will invade your life, and he is the one who initiates at his invitation in his timing when he set it all up to join him in what he wants to do. And when that invitation comes, I want to encourage you, when you have a visitation from God and he reveals to you what he wants to do, you answer the call. Because unless you answer the call, you can't be used by God. So readiness first of all, requires that you and I act responsibly answer the call, but second, thirdly, we must advance in faith. I can't imagine why he would be fearful, can you? But the passage in verse 12 tells us exactly that, because this is no ordinary person in his presence, and he is overwhelmed to the reality and the recognition that this is not a man, it's either God or it's an angel, it's someone, oh man, I've done something wrong. Maybe I've offered the incense in a wrong way. Maybe I've come into the presence of God to offer this incense with sin in my life. There's something that I have done that is displeasing to God. And notice it's not by accident that we are told, according to Luke, that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. He was afraid. And the reason he was afraid was because of the unknowns. God has invaded his life and, and, and is inviting him to join him, but he doesn't, he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have... All the, all the understanding that he needs, and he doesn't recognize and understand because God hasn't spoken yet. And I think sometimes that, that's the reason why most of us are afraid. When God invades our lives and invites us to join him, aren't there a lot of uncertainties and insecurities and a lot of unknowns that we often bring to the table in our dialogue with God, and we want God to explain himself and tell us exactly how he's going to work it all out? And, and until he, he, he shows us step by step how this is going to work, these unknowns bring fear and insecurities and apprehensions because we just don't know what he's going to ask and then what he reveals and 
then how's it all going to happen? But the angel says to him, this is a command, by the way, not a suggestion. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Insecurity and uncertainty brings fear, and God commands us, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. But here's the interesting thing. The angel calls him Zechariah. Don't you think that freaked him out? Because he doesn't know who this angel is. He doesn't even know it's an angel. He knows it's a divine being. And this divine being looks at him and said, don't be afraid. Or do you think it was more of a, don't be afraid. You know, I, I don't know. But it was a command. Don't be afraid. Zachariah. How does this guy know my name? I don't know you. And you know who I am? Fear. Tension. Lack of understanding. Insecurity. Uncertainty. And then notice here in the reaction, a response where he says, do not be afraid. And then a revelation for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. He not only knows my name, but he knows what I've been praying for. Because you see earlier when he invades this, this very sacred and very private moment where Zechariah and God are having this one-on-one, -on -one, he invades, you know, he, he's, I'm praying, and he said, I have heard my prayer, which prayer? The one I was praying? You know, he's probably wondering, well, did you just hear just this prayer? Is that the one you're telling me? He said, no, 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 I didn't hear just that prayer. I, I've been hearing your prayers all along. The, those prayers that you've been praying for decades. We're not talking about days. We're not talking about weeks. We're not talking about years. We're talking about decades. Zechariah is an old man, and he and Elizabeth are old people. Now, I don't know how you define old, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old they were, but I was told at one time in my life, if you're over 60, you're old. Of course, my grandchildren will tell me that their parents are old, and they're 40. How do you define old? But they're old, and they're old enough they are beyond childbearing years. And yet, in spite of them being old enough to be beyond childbearing years, they're still praying that God would bless them with a son. Knowing the impossibility of that happening, they are still continually, constantly praying that God would give them a son. I don't know if that's faith or that's ignorance. But they do believe that God is capable of doing the impossible. And yet now, through this angelic visit, he is proclaiming to them... I am about to answer your prayer. And he's probably thinking, how did you know I've been praying for this? I've been doing this in my prayer closet. I've told no one. The reason why Luke tells us this is because he wants us to understand that what God is about to do is he's about to do something impossible. Because when the angel, which we're going to study next week, comes to Mary and tells her she's about to deliver a son and she's going to name him Jesus, that's an impossibility too. But she's a virgin. But here, these people are so old that they can't have children. And he said, you're going to have a son, and Zechariah, you're going to name him John. Why is that critical? Why is that critical to this text? Because, you see, fathers want to name their sons after them. My first son is named Matthew Charles Boswell. I have, I'm about to have my ninth grandchild in January, Aaron and Samantha in Canada, I, have, I will have four grandsons, and I have promised to give the world to any of my sons who name their son, my grandson, Charles, but they have yet to do it. Can, can somebody loan me a million dollars, and I'll pay Aaron 
Maybe, you know, anyway. You're going to name him John. Do you think that was an incredible revelation? I think it was. But then he says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice in his birth. I don't know about you, but I've had three children with Patty and, 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 and every time when she informed me that we were expecting and we were going to have a child, wasn't it a time of rejoicing? Not only you, Zachariah, are going to have a time of rejoicing, but it says here that everyone, many, will rejoice over his birth. I don't know what God is going to ask you to do, but when he asks you to do something, I guarantee you it's going to be impossible for you to do without his help, and you're going to be filled with insecurities and uncertainties, and you're going to sort of wonder how in the world this is ever going to be possible, and instead of being filled with fear, Because of the unknowns and the insecurities, you need to take a step, a leap of faith, and advance in faith, believing that God, with God, all things are possible to those who believe. Which are the words that I think he's going to tell us in just a couple of Sundays. Advance in faith. Number four, abandon self. Abandon self. This may be a little bit of a stretch, But I can imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they've been praying all this time about having a son, more than likely, they have planned out his life. They had all of these expectations. They had all these dreams. They had all these ideas about what their son was going to be and what he was going to grow up to be. More than likely, he was going to be a priest like his father and like like his mother's father before him and all of that descent of Aaron. I mean, he, you know, they had it all mapped out, what school he was going to go to and what he was going to eat and what he was going to wear. And, 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 you know, how parents do sometimes, they, they set up these beds and these, these rooms already in expectation, anticipation, and we plan it out. And, and God sends a messenger to Zachariah and Elizabeth, and he says, it's not what you think. But, but let me ask you a side note here. When is parenting ever what we think it is before children? Come on. When is it ever what we have imagined? I mean, when, when, when we were told that, that Patty was going to have a, a boy and we talked about his name being Matthew Charles and we planned for that, I had no idea what parenting was about. Did you, John? I just held your little baby son up here. It changes everything. I mean, those, the world revolves around them. The sun rises for them and sets for them. And your your life changes. And here we see that he, this angel is saying, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth, your life is really going to change, but it's going to change even more than you can imagine because God has a plan and God has a purpose. Notice it said, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb he's saying God has a divine plan he's going to be a divine prophet he is going to be as great as any of the Old Testament prophets are going to be and there, there is a divine presence that's going to invade his life from the moment he is conceived in his, in his mother's womb he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit now keep in mind the Holy Spirit has not been granted yet because Pentecost has not happened and it was only given for special people for special assignments and the angel is saying from the time he is conceived in his mother's womb if you don't believe that that life begins in the womb you need to read this text because from the moment that life is conceived in the womb he is going to be filled with the holy spirit and it's not just any spirit it's a holy spirit holy spirit 
a divine prophet with a divine presence and a divine proclamation. And it says, and he will turn many of their children of Israel to the Lord their God. If you know anything about what Matthew and Mark tell us, you, you know that his message was a message of repentance. He was the first Turner Burn prophet ever in the New Testament era. And he told people to repent, and they were to turn from their sin and turn to God. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. I told you he was coming to the turn, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Notice God's power will be upon him. Lives will be transformed by this divine prophet who has this divine presence, who is proclaiming this divine proclamation. Lives are going to be changed through his prophecy, through his message. But notice the purpose for which God is giving John the Baptist. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Why is John the Baptist so critical and so important at the manger at Christmas? Because not only is this a miraculous conception... John the Baptist is going to be the prophet that God has going to assign for the specific purpose of preparing the hearts of the people to not only see the revelation of God in the flesh, but to receive Jesus as the Messiah. John the Baptist is an important figure surrounding the birth of Jesus. It is here that Zechariah is the first to receive a message from a messenger that was sent by God that the Messiah is on the way. I mean, it's, 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 it's stunning because 400 years, God has been silent. When is the, what is the last book in the Old Testament? Come on. Malachi. Right? 400 years, God has been silent. For 400 years, they have not heard from God. Now, all of a sudden, in the midst of the darkness, God sends an angel with a prophetic message that the Messiah is on the way. They have been waiting and waiting and waiting for generations, for decades, for centuries, and now the Messiah has arrived. He is coming. He is to be born of a, of a, a little virgin in a little town called Bethlehem, and he is going to be born in the Messiah. And Zechariah is the first to receive this, this message, this word. God breaks his silence to this elderly gentleman offering incense to God in a place of, of worship, saying to him, I'm going to grant you a son, and that son's going to prepare the way for the Lord. The abandonment of self is this. It's not all about you. Let me say that again. It's not all about you. All of this is not about you. This, this, this whole Christmas celebration is not really about you. Although he did come for you and he died for you and rose for you and he called you to be a disciple and, and all of those wonderful things, he didn't come for just you because what he is doing in your life is he is doing this in your life so that he can use you to be a blessing to someone else. For some unknown reason, God in his sovereignty decides to use weak, frail, incompetent people like us 
He invests in us so that as he invests in us, we might then die to self so that through dying to self, we might be a blessing to someone else. He's saying, Zechariah, it's not all about you being a father and finally getting a son. This son has a purpose. I have a plan. He's going to be a powerful individual filled with the Holy Spirit, and his message is going to change lives, but it's not all for you and only you. It's about a greater plan that I have to redeem a lost humanity. Recently, we had someone who, I shouldn't say this, and Patty's not here today, so I won't hear about it. Somebody who said recently, you know, I don't like what y'all are doing up in Emmanuel anymore and what you're doing to my church. I don't know what they're referencing, and they came to me and said, well, what do we say to that? And I said, I don't know. What do you say to that? We have become so egocentric and so self-centered that we have come to believe that everything that is said and done in here is for us. As if we are the ones that, that are the objective of God's sole purpose. And, and, and I'm saying he has a purpose for us, but it's not all about us. Christ's followers need to get the focus off of ourselves and put it on God and put it on others because we are here for others, not just for ourselves. And stop being so egocentric and self-driven to see where it's all about me and it's all about us, but it's about God and it's about God using me to invest in others so that they too might come to faith in Christ. He is saying to Zachariah and Elizabeth, this son that I'm giving to you is not just for you. There's a greater plan. There's a greater purpose. There's a higher thing that I want to do than just bless little OU. It's going to bless you, but it, it moves beyond that. And it takes, I think, from a self-centered church today that we are raising a self-centered generation in most of our churches today where we think, if they don't play the kind of music I want, or if they don't look a certain way, or if they don't do you know, I'm out of here. And we are an entitlement culture, and we are raising an entitlement church that somehow has concluded that The world revolves around me, but maturity comes to an abandonment of self and recognizing that God calls us and God places us exactly where he wants us to be, to be used, not just for our benefit and blessing, but to be for the benefit and the blessing of others. And I think that's the highest calling. Number five, we need to accept God's help. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered in, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to, sp- to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I like that. They will be fulfilled in their time. What's Zechariah's response? Zechariah doubts. He doubts. How can this be? I'm an old dude. We're well past childbearing years. What you're saying is going to happen is an impossibility. And the angel then describes this beautiful insight, a discovery that says, with God, all things are possible. Don't doubt. Things are possible. And then he disciplines Zechariah. He strikes him so that he can't speak. Can you imagine the discipline of the Lord because of our disbelief? He struck him so that he could not speak. If we're not careful, 
when God invades our lives and invites us to join him, we need to understand and we need to realize that what he's inviting us to do and what he's asking us to do cannot be done independently and apart from him. It cannot be done without him. He is required to make it happen. I don't care how small and insignificant you think that it is. Because there's nothing too small and insignificant for God. And the reality is that most of us, if we're not careful, we wind up thinking we can handle the small things and God will let you handle the big things. But the reality is that we can't even handle the small things without God. For we ourselves are not God and we need God's help for the large things and those things we have deemed insignificant and small. But this is no small thing, is it? And it's not going to be possible without God's help. And lastly, we need to wait patiently for the answer to come. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. He finished his time of service, and he went home. And if you notice the timetable there, nine months, John was born. And then for five months, she hid herself. Now, I'm not a bad mathematician, but it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out how many months that is. How many months is that? Nine and five is what? Come on. Fourteen. For 14 months, he waited for the promise to be revealed. Turn to Luke chapter 157. I'm going to read this quickly, and we're going to close. Notice what happens according to the Gospel of Luke in the naming of John the Baptist. Verse 57 said, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. No, 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 no. Don't, we're not going to circumcise him and, because he would, he would have been stuck with that name for the rest of his life. He said, no, no, no. He's to be called John, not Zechariah. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They didn't take her word for it. Ladies, can you understand that? You're standing there next to your husband and you're talking to somebody about fixing your car and they, they hear your mouth and then they turn to the husband and say, what do you really want to do? Okay? Shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing that, should they, ladies? No. She got it right the first time and, and he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And wrapping it all up, he had to wait. How long have you been waiting on God? To answer your prayer. I 
I, I, I said I like that passage where the angel said, which will be fulfilled in their time. It will be fulfilled in their time. God has a timetable. And in his time, and in his way, he who hears your prayer will answer your prayer and bring release and relief and replace that with rejoicing. God wants to use you for extraordinary things. And the only way God will use you if you'll be reliable, ready for what God wants to bring into your life. And I'm praying as you are praying, as we pray for God to fill these seats, we are making ourselves ready for him to do that in his time. And I believe in his time, in his way, it will happen. Let's pray. Good morning. We are uh, starting our service today with a baptism, and so this morning we have Zach Spencer, and uh, uh, you are one of Zach's friends or family members who's here to support him this morning. We ask that you stand during this time, and yeah, there's no small reason, there's no small effort on your part that he is, he is here also. So, uh, man, I'll say this about Zach, I don't do this with everybody, but... I, one of the things I love and admire about Zach is he is true to himself through and through. Uh, doesn't really care what people say about him or anything. And so that's why two weeks ago or four weeks ago, whatever it was, I was over here at the end of the service and Zach comes over and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to pray with Zach about something. And he just sat down and said, man, it's not real. And in that moment, I don't think that I, like I said, I don't know that I've ever respected anybody more Zach has grown up here. He's gone to a Christian school. Um, man, for someone to come out of that kind of history and realize that my relationship with Jesus to this point has just not been real, and to be willing to admit that and then stand before a congregation this morning like he is and be baptized, I think is a true testament to who he is and the work that God has done in his life. And so uh, just, man, love and respect you so much, buddy. Uh, so let me ask you, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life.